right, so we're in the book of Philippians. Um, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this evening. I'm going to do a little bit of uh, backing up just a little bit, tag teaming in kind of what we ended with last night and then taking us into uh, the first 11 verses. You have notes there in front of you. All right, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 and 11 says, So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the, in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. It's very key, same mind, same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. <clears throat> Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is where it gets like really, really good. I know Blake's having a field day over there right now. His, his, his wheels are spinning. Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so let's look at some of the revealed truths in this text and to be straight up with you, we are not going to... We're going we're gonna to cover what's being said, but the things that we just encountered, we could spend months on. Maybe even longer. Exactly. Just lots of books have been written on one verse, thousands of pages on one section. But we're going to get into what, what is being said. Whoa. So we have two Greek words that open up in this, in this verse one. And the, the Greek word is I, meaning if, truly if. The second Greek word is un, which means therefore or wherefore or, or verily, right? And so Paul's asking these questions. He's asking a rhetorical question in the beginning that really it's, it's a no-brainer. Paul knows that these things are in Christ, things that he describes, right? He's like, if there is any comfort, right? any encouragement in Christ. He knows that those things are in Christ and, he, and the Philippian church also knows these things. 
He's trying to get them to reflect on whether these qualities were present in them at that moment or in the church. For these first few verses, also, they also point back to what we just read last week. And really in ways, in a way, I think it kind of serves as almost like a, a summing up of chapter one from, from my perspective. Paul is telling us that Christ in chapter one has been involved in his disciples' lives from prison in Rome where he's at all the way to the church in Philippi. And yes, he is rejoicing that Jesus is gonna finish his work that he started in all of them. And by the encouragement of Christ, by the comfort of Christ, by the love of Christ, by Jesus giving the church participation in the spirit, Jesus, uh, his affection and sympathy, he's bringing about their Christ-likeness in the world. And he's also bringing in another focus. He's bringing in this Christ-minded, this, this Christ-originating and Christ-sustaining unity in the body. He's bringing this into focus. He wants this, he's describing this unity in the body of Christ. And it's really in the, this unity he's asking for is in the, uh, it's in the midst of persecution. That's something that we've been talking about really each week because that's kind of one of the backdrops to this book is that these people have been persecuted for their faith. Paul had been put in prison in that city. Some of the people that were in this church in Philippi had sent people to go see him in prison. And he says something in the last, in the last few verses of chapter one, where in verse 29 of chapter one, he says, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, meaning the Philippians saw that he had this conflict in Philippi and he was suffering for the gospel for the sake of Christ that you saw that I had and here that I still have. So there's a call of Christ for every believer that's front and center in these, in these verses. Jesus himself said these words in Matthew 5, verse 10 and 12. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Say righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is, is plainly saying that you're going to follow him you're going to be living in righteousness. You're going to be, there's going to be an, some things that you come against in the world. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be things that because of who you know and who you're living your life out in, you're going to encounter these things. And Christ, he's the way. If he is this way, right, we're going to be called to be this way. And if we are Christ's and he's ours, we will be called the sacrifice, just like him. It starts with having something that comes from a relationship with Jesus that helps you in this, in this process, and it's love. 
Verse two says, he says, have the same love. The same, he's talking about the love of Jesus, having the same love. And then he says, have his mind. So saying having the, having the love of Jesus and having the mind of Jesus, having this among yourselves. Verse five says, have this mind. He's saying, he's talking about the mind of Jesus, his life, who he is, having that among yourselves. And he says, which is yours. Say yours. It's yours in Christ. Nobody else can give it to you. I can't give it to you. Pastor Eric can't give it to you. Nobody can. It's yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one that gives it to you, and he wants to. He wants you to have his love and to have his mind. Paul expands on this a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I don't know about you guys, that blows my mind. That just blows me away. When, when you think about that, having the mind of Christ, by faith, you have the mind of Christ. In this section of, 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 of chapter one, I'm sorry, chapter two, verse one through 11, Paul's main thrust is to be obedient servants like Christ through having his love and through having his mind. And Paul shows us some of Christ's qualities and shows us how Christ lived, lived it out and therefore how we're called to live it out. Christ is our great high priest. He's the mediator between us and God. He's the author. He's the perfecter of our faith, as Hebrew says. Then Paul does something. He switches gears and he he introduces us to this, this poem or this, this hymn, and it's, it's of great importance. It, it is, historians and theologians have, have been talking about, okay, is this something that, that actually Paul personally wrote for, the, for the, the, the church in Philippi, or is it something that he borrowed from, uh, from some pre-existing uh, uh, liturgy within the church? where they were reciting this or portions of it. And Paul is like bringing validity to it and putting it in and saying, this is yes, 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 right? It's one of the unique gems of scripture that we're about to approach. And it shines out so much truth of Christ. And, and from having faith in its words and what it says, I believe the power of God is revealed and received for it's the truth and essence of the gospel It's kind of, in a way, kind of like a mini creed. And creeds were, are statements of faith or confessions of faith that were written and recited by the churches for, for centuries and millennia. And many traditions still have, you know, congregants recite creeds. So I'm going to give you four major creeds here that exist within the church. Um, you have the Apostles' Creed. I'm giving you some dates. They're, they're kind of, they're like, ah, maybe it was early, maybe it was a little bit later. They're giving you kind of a broad 120-year stroke on the Apostles' Creed of when the, the, the Christians were actually reciting those actual words within their, their liturgy and in, in their worship. The Nicene Creed, 325 A.D., 
This creed is officially accepted among the three branches of Christendom, Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestant Christianity. There's the Athanasian Creed, which is really cool, but that's disputed um, as, as like when it was wrote. Some say it was early, some are saying fourth, sixth century, fifth century. They're all kind of, so I just put disputed. I didn't put you know, any dates in there. Then there's the, um, the Chalcedon Creed in 451 AD. These are all really cool things you can go and read. You can read it online. Sometimes your Bible will have it in there towards the back. They're not really, really long and extensive, but it lays out what the church foundationally believes. The Apostle Creed is probably the oldest. Um, this section that we're in, Philippians, is teaching us the heartbeat of Christ and his work. It's the truth of Christ and his mission, his passion, and his vision for his church. And it's an example for everyone who believes of what they believe. Did you hear what I said? It's an example for everyone who believes of what they believe. When you come to know Christ, you get, you get revelation of who he is through the preaching of the word and through the spirit of God, someone praying for you. But you don't get in a second, I've never met anybody, maybe you can, I mean, God can, I'm sure, but you don't get in a second everything that Christ is and everything that Christ has done. You're like, yeah, he died for my sins. Yes, he's here speaking right now. Wait, he rose from the dead? What? No way. Okay, what? He, whoa, he always existed? Like, what do you mean? So the first thing we see here is verse 6, the preexistence of Christ. Verse 6 says, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So we're seeing there, Christ existed with God. And as God, before the foundation of the world. That word, uh, though he was in the form, that Greek word is morphos, it's the exact imprint and true nature of something. Paul is speaking something very, very like foundationally important for us to understand and try to grasp. I mean, it's, it's, he's talking about the Trinity, even though that word is not in the Bible. We learned about that on Sunday. So he's laying this foundational, what's been called throughout history, uh, Christology. And he's laying down some Trinitarian thought for us. It's fundamentally what we're looking at, excuse me, is a historical Christian belief. The Nicene Creed says this, that directly ties into verse six. It says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only son of God, the eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Jesus himself, in John chapter 17, spoke these words when he was praying. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He said, uh, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, says Jesus speaking, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus, by his own admission, and the disciples hearing this in, in his prayer to his Father, he was in the form of God in the beginning. John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says this, starts out, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, I'm sorry, the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and he was in the beginning with God. Wait, wait, I got a typo there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the, in the beginning with God, speaking about Jesus. Now, we can spend a lot of time on that verse. I'm not going to. We could talk about the logos and all that stuff, the, the Greek word for word that John is using there. But we're going to move on. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have this definitive statement of Paul to the church in Philippi that Jesus is God. And he existed. He was in the form of God. The next thing we see is the incarnation of Christ. And Christ is the God-man. Verse 7, second half of uh, verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8 says, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. So this, as he's going down this progression, this Christology, this high Christology that he's presenting to us really leaves us no doubt that the earliest Christians did worship Jesus as God. It wasn't something that happened later. It wasn't something that came up in the third century or after the Council of Nicaea. It was something that from the beginning, his disciples and, and the people that his disciples discipled, they believed. There's actually a, a really cool uh, secular quote uh, from a, um, he was a Roman governor named Pl Pliny the Younger. And he wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan, and they have this letter. And this letter said, he was speaking about a lot of different things, but he was talking about Christians as well. He says, the Christians were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively or together a hymn to Christ as to a God and bind themselves by an oath. It's kind of cool. They sang a hymn to God. I wonder if it was similar to the one we're reading in Philippians. It's being noticed as a poem or a hymn. It's got a, a poetic structure to it. And they're like, who knows? And Pliny lived 23 AD to 79 AD. So this is first century. Um, yeah. You guys tracking with me? So we got the pre-existence of Jesus. Jesus existed with God. Then we have the incarnation. Jesus becomes man. And then we have the reason why Jesus became a man. Because of the will of the Father. But in verse 8, he says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here 
The cross is the most recognized symbol in Christianity. I'm sorry, most recognized symbol of Christianity. You see a cross, you just know, oh, maybe, maybe, you, are, maybe you believe in Jesus. Maybe, you know, we see him all over the place. I would, I would suggest that each one of these is, is pivotal and foundational to understanding who Christ is. But his work on the cross, to me, as, as I've looked at scripture, and I got some other scriptures here for us, is it's, it's the thing. It's the moment. Jesus called himself the door. And I believe the door is, is the cross. And, and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, the apostle Paul says this. He, the church was arguing about who was baptizing who and they were arguing about leadership, and I follow this person, I follow this person, and, and he, he says, uh, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The church in Galatia, he wrote this in chapter 6, verse 14, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 2.20, I've actually visited this a couple times in our uh, times together. He says, I have, this is Paul speaking to the church in Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the cross of Christ that's described here, and, and it is, some, some people have called it this, and I love how, they, how, how this is kind of set out and said, but it's the blazing center of our salvation. It's the very centerpiece of our understanding of, of God himself, his nature, his great love within the Trinity for, for, for the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the love that exists between them and the love that is for us is seen through this cross. Some people would call it a, a cruciform theology, cruciform meaning cross, a lot of ancient churches, I got the opportunity to go to Rome and see some really old buildings, a lot of old churches. And some of these old churches are literally built, when you're looking at them from the top down, they're built like a cross. They're in the shape of a cross. I believe God wants us and intends for us to understand what, what we need to understand about him starts at the cross. And we work back from there. Even, even great theologians from history and historians have, have encouraged us to interpret the Old Testament from a Christ-centric place. That there, there's types and shadows leading you to Christ and who Christ is, but the most important thing being the cross. The early church lived this foundation and understanding that God in Christ through the cross is not at the expense of the resurrection, or to minimize the resurrection, or to minimize the infilling of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but the cross was, was the foundation. That was the door from which you entered into a relationship. And we're gonna get into 
if it be a door, and that's where the relationship begins, where we all bow before Jesus at the cross and accept his sacrifice for our sins, and we enter into relationship and this Holy Spirit indwells our lives, we don't walk away from there without a cross of our own. And that's what Paul is, is really thrusting forward in here. For, I mean, he's telling you some heavy stuff. Jesus existed before the foundation of the world. He is God, even though he didn't, he didn't take that for himself. He came down and humbled himself, became a servant unto death, death on a cross for you and to the glory of God because it was God's plan. The cross is the defining moment. The center of the Old Testament, the New Testament, is the cross. We are all called, and, and Paul is calling the Philippians church by presenting this, this vision of, of Jesus and who he is to a, a cross-life obedience, to a cruciform obedience, what that looks like. Some of you may be familiar, um, I'm not sure, not everybody, there's an old th uh, theologian, he's passed away now, named A.W. Tozer, and um, he's written tons of books. Um, but he, he made this, this, this distinction between the old cross and the new cross. And he was making a distinction about uh, 20th century, um, uh, I guess you would say, uh, some things that were not as beneficial, that were, that were more new. Uh, I'll, I'll say it that way. Where the cross of Christ was, was kind of dumbed down and, and the preaching of the cross became more about your therapy and your happiness as opposed to your death and identifying with the death of Christ. Because that's what the cross is about, ladies and gentlemen. That's exactly what it's about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, a 20th century martyr who died under Nazi, Nazi rule, uh, coined this phrase, cheap grace versus costly grace. And I've been going through his book recently called The Cost of Discipleship, and it's just timely uh, with where we're at in the book of Philippians. It's been just kind of wrecking my brains. And what he, the distinction he makes about this cheap grace versus costly grace is that it, it all focuses on the 20th century preaching that, that people that emerged kind of out of the, out of the Great Depression and, and, for, and, and, and forward is that yeah, we're going to dumb it down as much as we can so, so, you can so you can get on board, right? And following Jesus isn't going to cost you anything. Following Jesus is going to be the coolest and easiest thing you've ever done in your life. And he's like, that, that, that's cheap. That's cheap. Costly grace is is. You know what Jesus did for you. You understand the cross, what he did up there for you. You understand that he did that instead of you actually being put up there by God. Because that's what you and I deserve. I definitely recommend reading that book if you never approached it. It's, it's, it's really good. It's worth getting through. It's kind of... Muddy at some points and kind of heady, but getting through it, it's, it's a killer book. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. Another one I would recommend to you is The Cross of Christ. Um, and, uh, oh, geez, who's the author? I'm trying to think who the author is. 
um, John Stott, who also wrote Basic Christianity, which there's nothing basic about it at all. It's hilarious. It's kind of a, because when you open the book, you're like, oh my gosh, but um, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Um, he's no longer with us. He was 20th century uh, theologian. So we have this, this, this call to, to a Christ-like life. And he brings, us, he, he brings us into who he is. He existed before the form. He existed before in the form of God. And, but he takes us to this, to this cross. And I just, I can't, I can't, I can't move past it. It's hard for me to move past um, in, in my head. And I'm just kind of at this place of, of, of just kind of looking at it and, 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 and imagining and letting the spirit take me there. But there's some other things in view. I'm, I'm not going to drag you down. It, co- it costs you everything because nothing of what you have can get you it. Nothing that, nothing that you have can get you it. It costs, it, you have to die. You and I, we, we have to die. Jesus did that for us, but it is really awesome. It is really awesome. And I think that the, the, the idea of costly grace, cheap grace, grace being free but the 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 what he presents or at least Bonhoeffer what he presents is that we have dumbed it down to a point where we no longer are we're justifying sin as instead of the blood of Jesus justifying the sinner and we spend a lot of time going well what about this one thing is God really mad about that one thing if it's a sin, it's a sin. It put Jesus on the cross. It's not a... It, it, it. And I think that's one of those things as humans, we, we like to break things up and, and put value structures on things and like, you know, well, this thing ain't so bad, but this thing's really bad. Like killing people, that's really bad. You know, um, hurting children, that's really, really bad. But, but lying on your taxes? Nah, come on. Everybody does that. Right? And... I'm like, okay, really? Now, does, does, the thing you got to be careful with is that does Jesus forgive your sins when you, when you fall? Yes, of course. Scripture says that. But if you say yes to Jesus so that you can just get away with more sin and then get your get out of jail, get out of hell free card... Then, then you got a problem on your hands. You, I, I, you're, you're in a very dangerous place. I'll just put it that way. You're in a very dangerous place. So then we have the resurrection, the ascension, and the glorification of Jesus in this passage. She says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There's this, this picture of Jesus being, being taken, being lifted up. There's, there's resurrection, ascension, the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Say every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is no longer just a Jewish sect. This is no longer just a religion for a little corner of the world. This is no longer a belief system that is just for a little, a little ragtag group of people. It's actually now for the whole world. Every tongue will confess. Every knee is going to bow. So just uh, some, some things I've been trying to work through about the free grace and the cost of discipleship and trying to rightly divide the word of God. I found some verses that were interesting. Mm-hmm. One of them being uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And it makes me think about the division of works Mm -hmm. and grace as in Ephesians, you know, we're uh, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. Mm -hmm. So I wonder about the costliness of discipleship and versus the gift, which you don't work for a gift, mm-hmm. right, of free grace. And mm-hmm. this verse saying that the guy who keeps the commandments and teaches others to do so being great in the kingdom of heaven, he's in the kingdom of heaven. And so is this other person who does not keep the commandments and does teach other men to not keep them also. What do you think about this? Mm-hmm. I'd have to go there and look at it with you. And that's, a, that's a great question. But to answer the question about free grace and the cost of discipleship, and in terms of what Jesus is talking about right there, I'm going to turn to it really quick. I don't want to get too sidetracked. Can I, can I answer him for a minute? Oh, yeah, go for it, Blake. Okay, so yep. like you were saying about uh, in the 20th century, yes. some of the... Um, free grace lingo and mm-hmm. the cross lingo and yeah the i'll, I'll just say it the mega churchism word, um, it's the word of faith movement is really <laughs> what it is we'll call it we'll, yeah we'll call it um, what it is yeah but so the idea of free grace is kind of a misnomer it's meaning it is improperly called that it is not free first of all um jesus paid a very high price for it okay so that's one <clears throat> Uh, point two is because it's not actually free, um, we, it's kind of an evangelism tactic like you were talking about, Adam, mm-hmm. where it's we, when we say, oh, this is a free gift that you get. You know, this is a free gift that Jesus is giving you. That's not actually really described anywhere in the Bible like that. That's kind of more of an evangelism tactic. What is actually happening is the power from grace is nothing that we can accomplish, which Adam kind of talked about that and danced around that idea a little bit. But the power of the power of salvation, so the actual thing doing the saving in your life, which is what we call grace, is you are unable to do that at all. Like it is something you can't even fathom, think about. There's nothing in your being that can accomplish that act of salvation. So God has to do 100% of that act. That's when Paul says it's a gift of God 
Yes, not it's of because it's coming from Him. Yes. It's not just this present that we get to open. It's all the power in that salvation comes from Him. Yes. Now, why it's a misnomer, why it's improperly labeled is we as the church sometimes as an evangelism tactic just say, all you have to do is believe. You just have to, to say this prayer and you just have to, to right. check a box, yeah, right? That's, that's all you have to do is just, just check a box, yep. right? But the way that Paul, who is the biggest proponent of all these theologies of grace, the way he talks about faith and all those things is faith is this very active thing. It's not something that we just, oh, I just have faith. It's just, I'm just going to, or, oh, I'm going to pray for more faith, or I'm going to work it up inside of me. Literally how Paul describes faith, which is accepting of God's grace, is when God says something, we say, yes, God, I believe you, and now I have to act on it. The example he uses is Abraham with Isaac. When God told Abraham, go sacrifice your son, the moment of faith wasn't him, oh, okay, it was when he went to go stab him in the heart with it, right? That was the faith act. So it's an action thing. It's believe in God and doing what he says based off of that. So that involves repentance. That involves uh, assent. You know, I, I assent to what he says. That involves belief. That There's a lot more going on. But all the power comes from God. None of the power comes from you. But you still have to do stuff. You still have to believe in him. You still have to repent. You still have to yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that, that make sense at all? You're not doing any works. <clears throat> You're not do, but all the works is coming from God. All the power comes from him. The stuff you're doing isn't stuff that affects the grace at all. The work of salvation is 100% God's. Yes. There's nothing that you can do to yes. affect the salvation. Exactly. But you are not excused from doing works, but the works that you do do not affect the salvation. Ephesians chapter two de definitively says that your salvation is a work of God. It's a grace of God and it's not from you so that you cannot boast. You can't go, look what I did. You know, I, I saved myself for eternity. No, but when you enter into that when you are taken to the cross and you, and you all of a sudden it is revealed to you by the spirit of God that that was done for you and you, and you identify yourself with that. You're like, I, be, I believe that. I believe that. You enter into a relationship with the creator of the universe by his spirit, by his power and through you he is going to do mighty things. We can get caught up in the, in the idea of works and, and think like, okay, I got to spend the rest of my life being a goody two-shoes and like, you know, doing this and doing that and changing tires and this and that. It's so much deeper than that. It's so much deeper than just the idea of, okay, now I got to do good things for people. Yes, absolutely. But it is so much deeper than that. It's, an, it's, it's, it's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. Absolutely. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that, you know, when you come to Christ, I wish I knew where he quoted it and I can quote it like correctly, but when you come to Christ, you become more of your real self because he completes everything. Because we're not, we're not complete. We're sinful. We have death. 
It's not, it, it goes all the way back to Genesis. It's, it's a part of our creation, but it's not normal. God instituted it so that sin wouldn't be this perpetual thing. Everybody gets to live forever and eat from the tree of life and live forever. He's like, nope, sorry, we're not going to do that. Following Christ is going to cost you everything because it's not, it's no, it's not your life anymore. If you go into um, Luke chapter 9, I was looking at this uh, this morning, there's three disciples. Oh, to speak to your verse real quick, and, and we just have a few minutes, but um, foundationally in Matthew 5, 19, I was going to say, and then I looked in here, I was like, oh yeah, they're, they're, he's, he's talking about fulfilling the law. That he's there to actually, he's, he's going to fulfill the law. And he's, there's this, there's, he's, he's ministering and preaching and teaching in the context of the Jewish law in, at that time. And he's there to complete it. And he's, he's alluding to what's, what's happening currently with Judaism and the Jews and their system of law. Does that, does that make sense a little bit? I mean, you can get, you can get deeper into it, but I'm, I want to finish with this um, we need to enter into a selfless sacrifice like Christ. Verse 7a, first section of that. He emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. He existed before the world, was equal to God. He emptied himself, he humbled himself, he, to obedience to the Father, to death on a cross, he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. There's that word that we talked about a few weeks ago, the slave, the bond servant. We like to, I, I'm still of, of the, <laughs> the, the side that I stand on really is, is somebody is 100% we are called to live out our lives subservient to the purposes and will of Jesus, period. I don't care where you work. I don't care. It doesn't matter. You are a representative of the Son of God where you're standing. It's, you know, we're, it's not about professionals. It's, it's, it's about Jesus, us identifying with, with him in his death. That's what baptism is all about. Last verse. So he humbled himself to obedience. He emptied himself took the form of a servant. And he also said this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 25. These are the words of Jesus. If anyone, say anyone, would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, say daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So you and I are called. When you come to faith in Jesus, you're looking at the cross. And then he hands you one. Those are his words, not mine. He hands you one. I think Paul says somewhere else, somebody could remind me of this, of where it's at, but he says, um, uh, we, we carry around in ourselves the death of Christ. 
I think it's in Corinthians, but I can't uh, off the top of my head. He's saying, carry your cross daily. Pick up your death and follow Jesus. Meaning, there's going to be less of you, your will, your desires, your plans for his. But the cool thing is, the closer you come to him, I've, I've, I've experienced this. The closer you come to him in relationship, suddenly the things that, that he wants to do seem a whole lot cooler. And they, and they, and they seem more right. Even though it's gonna, it might be painful, it might hurt a little bit, you just know that you know that it's the right thing to do. Well, that's about all I got. That's, I mean, we could spend the next four months just on this section, and it's really awesome. And I hope that you, I, I've actually been reading this section every day for the past week, and, and uh, it's been really cool reading it, and uh, reading it over and over again, and, be, and becoming acquainted with it, and letting it start to become something that I pray, becoming a prayer in my, in my life. And... Um, With that, let's, let's pray. Let's close out in some prayer. Jesus, again, we thank you for the gathering together of your people. We thank you, Jesus, for this word. We thank you, Jesus, that it, it just it explodes off the page to all of us in so many, so many ways and speaks to so many areas of our lives. And, and you bring to, to, to mind in all of us things that, that you, want to, you want us to do and things that you want to die in us. And Lord, help us not to get stuck on that, that there's things in us that you want to, to, to kill. <laughs> I know that I can get stuck on that, like, really, man? I thought you were, like, cool and, like, really nice, and, you know, you, you just want to give me hugs and stuff. Well, of course you do, but there's things in us, Lord. Help us to acknowledge those things and be able to surrender those things and step into new, new places that you're calling us to. Because Paul was speaking these things to the Philippian church, preparing them for service. And Lord, we are being prepared for service. And our church, the church, in this, in this century is being prepared for service. I believe that we need to be preparing ourselves to align ourselves with the death of Christ, with, with coming up underneath persecution and not being afraid to speak the truth in love and to let your spirit do its work through the preaching of the word and through sharing resources and being your hands and your feet Lord, we thank you that, that you're so good and your love is so huge. Because of your great love, you did all these things. You sent your only son to die on the cross for our sins so that we might not die and that we might know you and your glory and might know you and how incredible you are. Jesus, would you, would you do a work in our hearts, in our minds that... that I want to know you better. I want to, I want to see you better. I want, to, I want to see your glory better. I want, to, I want to make more of you in my life, Lord. I, want, I, want to, I just want to see you more clearly. And I know that someday I will. 
But Lord, I know that there's more now in this, in this moment, in this time. Let your spirit move in our lives and in our hearts as we look at this call to the Philippian church and this call that comes down through the centuries and, and reaches into our heart and asks us what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about you and how you serve. I thank you, Lord, that I'm in a room full of servants. I'm in a room of full of people that know how to serve. But Jesus, would you teach us more? Would you bring more of your spirit? Because where your spirit is, there's freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And Lord, that's what I want. I want freedom. Not freedom from you, or I want freedom to you. We thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this time together, the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit. Pray that you would have your way in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.